G'day, my name's Ian Campbell from Palliative Care Australia. Welcome to Thursdays at Three, a series of conversations with people living and working at the end of life. Our very special guest this afternoon is Professor Samar Un, who is the West Australian Australian of the Year for 2023 and now in line to be the Australian of the Year for 2023. Congratulations, Samar. How does it feel? Thank you, Ian. Uh, it's such a great honour. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm so thrilled and I'm really even more thrilled that um, I'm just really the voice for palliative care. You know, I could, I could, you know, amplify that more for the needs of the sector, including, of course, compassionate communities that's part of, of palliative care. Samar, your latest award is just, just one of many in a, in a really distinguished career. Let's go through your, your bio in a little bit more detail. You're the Head of Palliative Care Research at the Perron Institute at the University of Western Australia. You're an adjunct professor at La Trobe University. You co-founded the Southwest WA Compassionate Communities Network in 2018, and you lead the Compassionate Connectors Program. You're also very involved with motor neurone disease. You're the chair of the MND Association in Western Australia. You're a director on the board of MND Australia, and you're a member of the scientific committee of MND Research Australia. And to cap it off, you're a director on the board of Palliative Care Western Australia. Internationally, you're all over the place as well. You're a busy lady. You're a lady in demand with the European Association of Palliative Care and the Public Health Palliative Care International Network. A busy lady, as I say, Samar. What do you want us to know about palliative care? It remains a mystery for many people. What do you want people to know about palliative care? You're quite right. I mean, I did say for a while that um, still the community is confused about what palliative care is about. They, they just think it's on the end of life care. And therefore they miss out so much on having that quality of life mm -hmm. until death uh, arrives. All that family support, all that spiritual, psychosocial support, and, and later on bereavement support. But again, um, in it's uh, this is ad hoc for palliative care services. I mean, they're doing a fantastic job with symptom management and the clinical care, and it's not quite consistent uh, all the other holistic care that palliative care is about, and hence why uh, my interest as a non-clinician uh, in the compassionate community's approach to care and what led me to actually trial this compassionate community's connectors program for end-of-life care in conjunction with health services. The community can't do it alone and the health services can't do it alone. It's a partnership that needs to go to improve quality of care, quality of life, and quality of death. So uh, my aim and the aim of a lot in this field is to have palliative care accessible um, to everyone and everywhere. And I guess my work with motor neuron disease, it what led me more to um, do more work in this field. Sorry. See, you're a lady in demand. Everyone wants to talk to you. <laughs> I should have, should have put it on silent. Sorry. You're right. No worries. Um, so motor neuron disease, um, you know, which is an absolute death sentence from the start. Unfortunately, there's still no cure, um, you know, or treatment. But a lot of work is being done in this space. And we're hoping, you know, for um, something to happen in the near future. But I just noticed, you know, when I started research in the palliative care field that they are really such underserved population, along with other neurodegenerative disease, and now, of course, dementia as well. Um, and, I, and I felt my, they are missing out on so much of good quality of life until death comes. 
that um but but again you know you get uh, palliative care um health professionals saying well we can't we can't cope with every life limiting illness mm-hmm. um and again these are the specialist palliative care services and hence my my whole um, then focus became on the palliative approach to care mm-hmm. it's about how all generalist um you know health professionals can apply the palliative approach to care mm-hmm. and how the community can do that as well and hence until we have the community as an equal partner in delivering uh this support uh we're not going to move any further or the community is going to understand more what palliative care is about samara i'm keen to pick up a few of those those points especially your community based approach to palliative care and your interest in mnd but at the heart of what you've just said is receiving palliative care much sooner than perhaps many people receive palliative care at the moment it's not just that final part of life that seems to be at the heart of what you were just talking about that people should get access to palliative care much much sooner than perhaps they do now yeah absolutely um and again you know um from the diagnosis stage uh, it, it's important so that they are connected um with the whole palliative approach to care and every health professional every single person in the community needs to know how to support them when they get this bad diagnosis again through you know i mean that's part of the research i've done how do you deliver bad diagnosis and how do you receive it and again that's an issue for motor neuron disease because 40% of a national survey uh said they they didn't have it in an empathy and a compassionate way you know when when they knew that there is nothing else for them um but the ones who did uh were able to cope better with that with their with their journey um and it's actually that journey that matters and um again having talked to a lot of mnd um you know patients and families it's not death that's scary for them is that journey that's going to get them there it's all that yeah. disability it's all that social rejection the social isolation the care burden that they experience um you know anxiety depression all that and this is where you know we can all help in that journey <laughs> yeah. um so that when death comes um you know they they've experienced they experience a good death after they've experienced you know um, a good life you know so this is this is where sort of i'm hoping to um get this message across uh, in the in the next 12 months where does your passion come from samar how did you go down this path for many people in the palliative care sector it comes from from personal experience from family experience how did you come to be here you know in um because i'm a researcher i've always focused on delivering the research outcomes and making sure they go into translation and practice and i never really reflected on my personal journey but ever since the state award um people ask me this and so i've reflected more and i guess it's like i've got three different reasons why or, or led me probably consciously or, or unconsciously uh to take up uh you know not just palliative care but community service in general because this is where i mix the two between my professional and voluntary work um my grandfather who's um dr george awon he served the community uh in lebanon in northern lebanon um again uh, you know in a in a selfless way never really uh, asked for remuneration um and he you know he was a doctor uh, and there were few of them at the time we're talking about early 1900 so uh when he died the lebanese republic acknowledged his services with a medal 
which basically that's the one um, I've offered to the museum uh, in Canberra because each um, finalist had to offer an object so that it's exhibited uh, in the museum and then it'll do the tour. And I thought, what a marvelous opportunity is just hanging, you know, on, on, on my display. But to have, you know, everyone see it now after so many years, that's fantastic. So that legacy in community service is part that I grew up with. Um, and it was great. But then off comes the war in Lebanon. And uh, we had, I mean, I was an adolescent at the time, but, you know, it just marked my life so much because we had no choice in how we wanted to die. Well, we had actually four choices, either through indiscriminate shelling or car bombs or sniper fire. And if you happen to step into an area where it's not of your religious affiliation, well, that's your fate sealed anyway. So we faced our mortality every minute, you know, yeah. of the day. We just didn't have a normal life, a normal death, couldn't think of anything apart from surviving. And then, of course, you know, fast forward, you know, we came to Australia, which is fantastic, in 1992 after a stint in, in the UK, where, you know, I did my PhD and my kids were born there. Um, so, again, you know, um, I was asked to um, join a palliative care team. Uh, coming from a public health background. And that was great. I mean, as you know, there is this international movement of public health palliative care, who at the time I didn't know it existed. So when I was asked to be part of, you know, a palliative care team and uh, and I, I loved working, you know, with them and, and carried on and um, started work um, in particular in bereavement support. And in the midst of all that, well, really at the start of all that work, my father died um, in 2012. And um, I got the message really like a, a day before uh, Australia Day, I still remember this, but I had a meeting uh, at work with some health professionals. So I rang to say, um, look, sorry, I can't come, you know, told the secretary to, to uh, let the, the participants um, that's the reason I really need to book my flight because um, it's got to be done within three days, the whole you know, burial thing in, in, mm -hmm. in our sort of customs. Um, so anyway, I booked my flight and everything, and I went back to the meeting that was still running. Um, obviously, you know, really distressed. Not one of the health professionals who were in that room asked me how I felt. Really? Nothing. They just carried on with the meeting as if I'm okay, you know. They were scared to ask, were they? Is that yes. the assumption you've made? Mm -hmm. This really has left me with, okay, we need to do better. I needed support. I mean, just a nice word at the time, not more than yeah. this, you know, but um, nothing. And they were all health professionals. Mm -hmm. um, and then I was off to the plane, uh, off on the plane on Australia Day. Mm -hmm. um, and the contrast of having my community when I got there support yeah. me so well, looking after all the funeral, you know, uh, you know, business, I didn't have to deal with that. I just had, I felt I was carried on a cloud the whole week I was there. We had three days of mourning in the church hall and everybody who knew us came from all over Lebanon and just sat with us and we chatted. It, I just resolved my grief in those three days yep. because the community did such a wonderful job in supporting me and supporting my family. And hence, you know, when I came back and I thought we really need to do it better, you know, what I've experienced is not great, uh, you know, back when I was here in Australia. 
And this is then when I started looking and I heard about compassionate communities. And I thought, wow, this is what I had back home, back in, back in Lebanon, of course, you know, I'm, I call it home as well as Australia. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, um, and yeah, that, that kind of, you know, um, in a way, fast-tracked the work that, you know, I wanted to do in that space. Yeah. I get goosebumps hearing you share that story and where it has led in, in this sort of compassionate communities network model that you've been a pioneer in. And that's really at the heart, that's really the infrastructure for this community-based approach to palliative care that you advocate for. Tell us a bit more about the Compassionate Communities Network, what it is, what it does, what you hope it does. Well, everybody needs to have, uh, I mean, you know, start thinking and talking in a compassionate way. You don't need to have as such a network, but it's good to start having those conversations in the mm -hmm. community. But for us, we, we just needed a committee to start organizing death festivals, dying to no days, uh, you know, advanced care planning workshops. Uh, so we got together as a network to start this education and awareness. Um, and our main goal was that everyone in the community needs to know what to do when someone is caring, dying or grieving. Uh, it's everyone's responsibility and it's everyone's business. But people need, in a way, permission to help. We've got so many assets in our communities and all communities have got that that they would love to help, but they feel that they are imposing, there's privacy, confidentiality. And on the other side of it, you have people in the community, and there's a lot of them, they've, uh, they've lost the, the skill to, know, to accept help. Yes. That is the problem. And this is what we're trying to teach people. It is okay to accept help, because if you don't do this, you're not doing a favor for your community to skill them on mm -hmm. how to actually provide help. I mean, you'll benefit, of course, but, you know, uh, but uh, it's not just about you. It's about how you're going to contribute to your community, getting better death literacy and grief literacy in a way they need people to practice on. And then what goes around comes around. You know, this is how it works in the community. So we needed to work on both basically groups. Please accept the help mm -hmm. because if you don't do, you are shutting around you all the social networks, you know. And, and you'll become social, socially disconnected. And this is what we proved in the Connectors program, is that when the Connectors, who are wonderful volunteers with plenty of lived experience, mm -hmm. um, when they started going to people's home and offering that social and practical support and seeing who in their inner circles can help them, and if they didn't have inner circles, outer circles, or the community in general, and we managed to double the amount of networks around these families in a that would be sustainable, you know, because they made friends. This is part now of who they know, part who they can ask for help. And we had 50% of the people referred to us who are home alone, not because they didn't have families, but they are disconnected. Um, you know, either their kids are overseas or, you know, or in another place in, in, in Australia. Um, so, so it was really very rewarding to just get this research evidence uh, because, you know, we wanted to prove that it's not just a lovey-dovey approach. I mean, it makes yes. sense because social yep. relationships are really important. And there are, there are a lot of, you know, big trials showing that people who have good social relationships, uh, they have better health, they're, they're, they are happier in life, they live longer. And the opposite is true for those who don't have good social relationships. And other studies showed that, People with social relationships, uh, you know, good ones, 
um, you know, they, uh, there is an impact of this yeah. on reducing their mortality more than if they cease smoking or reduce their alcohol consumption or the, uh, consumption or reduce their weight. So that powerful thing. But what we wanted to know from the Connector program, are we going to increase social connectedness in a way that all the other trials done, you know, will, will work for us? So we know now that with increasing social connectedness, it will follow that the health of, of the community is going to get mm -hmm. better yep. in terms of mental and physical health. What if someone listening to this wants to make their community a compassionate community, wants to be one of those connectors, perhaps? What would your advice be? How does someone start this process in their local community? Um, yes, and I get asked this a lot, and I'm really hoping to help as many people as possible and have, have more people... Um, do that work moving forward, obviously, more like sort of train the trainer. So what I'm advising people for the near future now, we run connector training programs. Um, and it's very practical. It's one day. So the connectors are part of this training program. They come and explain what it's like for them to work with families um, in these situations. Uh, so once we have sort of more people um, with that knowledge, they can start and um, in their own community started bringing in more connectors mm -hmm. and, um, you know, um, telling people, look, we have this service now and telling the health service we have this service because it's the health service who's going to refer those patients originally. But then it doesn't mean that the community can't do referrals, you know, within them. I mean, it, it doesn't have to be uh, somebody who um, is already registered with the health service. Uh, primary care referrals are going to be key uh, because what we have noticed is that, and the connectors have said that, it's better if we start upstream because we did get families referred to the program who were too much towards the end, um, not because palliative care services referred late to the connector program, because mm -hmm. they were referred late to the palliative care service. So by the time we knew about them, they were really too exhausted to actually... Mm -hmm think about how we're going to get more community engagement around us. So this is why we partnered again with the WA Country Health Service, but with the chronic disease team. So people who have got terminal illnesses or chronic disease, um, and then, you know, that's upstream. And that's worked better because we did have, you know, at least 12 months to work with, you know, some of these families and prepare them well for the journey. Hmm. I was so, talking to... I was talking to a mum recently, Samar, about her paediatric palliative care journey with her, her daughter, who sadly passed away earlier this year. And I asked her, you know, what was the best thing that somebody did for you during your palliative care experience? And it was mow the lawn. Somebody came and mowed her lawn. She was feeling the pressure of the lawn growing, the grass growing, the judgment of the neighbourhood. And it was someone simply came and mowed their lawn. And it sounds like the Compassionate Communities Network takes care of big and small. They mow the lawn, but, but can do so much more. It's, an, it's, a, it's a wide scope of work. Yeah. And, and you know, there's the little things that matter and that matter to these people. Yeah. Because yeah. when you do those little things, um, you're showing people you love them. Um, you, you are sharing in, in um, you know, uh, maintaining their dignity. Um, you you know they matter to you, 
So it doesn't have to be big things. And that's absolutely what came across the Connector program. Again, mowing the lawn, uh, cooking a meal, uh, putting the washing up on the liner, taking the kids to school. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we and, and when we looked at all the domains of help, you know, like transport, um, you know, taking taking to people to medical appointments, all that stuff, 80% of the needs were social. So the connectors in general, they, you know, I, they, the stories, you know, of course, I connected with them on a, on a um, fortnightly Zoom meeting so that, you know, I can hear what's happening in, in those families. Um, most of the time they tell them, we don't need help. We just want people to come and talk to us and have a cuppa with us. Yeah. That's it. I'll put yeah. some more information about compassionate communities with the video so that people can follow the links and find out some more and perhaps bring this to their own community. Samara, I'm keen to pick up on your migrant story. It's it's such a part of what we celebrate on Australia Day, Australia's multicultural mm-hmm. heritage. You came to Australia in 1992, and you you touched on it earlier in a way. I guess the um, the influence that your younger years in Lebanon had on you, and perhaps your approach to to death and dying, given that your mortality was a part of every single day. What's the backstory? How did you get to Australia? Was it as simple as 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 fleeing war that you pointed to before? Um, yes, I suppose so. By the time uh, my husband husband and I did our um, you know studies in the UK and had the kids, it was still not a safe country to go back to and raise those kids because both my husband and I we were traumatized, you know, having lived there through our adolescence and early mm-hmm. years, and we didn't want our kids to you know, relive or we us reliving with them, um, a sad cause. Um, And uh, yeah, so my husband had relatives in Australia who they all visited us in London and they kept saying, you know, please come to Australia. Uh, You know, um, it's a great place to live. And uh, and we did. And it is. It's a great place to live. And it's fantastic. We're so lucky that we have uh, heard their advice. What can you share with us about Lebanon that perhaps we might not know? So much of what we know about Lebanon comes from the news and it's not always good news. But what would you like to share with us about Lebanon, your your birth country? What do we want to know about Lebanon? Look, it's a beautiful country. I mean, even even friends who visited just fall in love with the beautiful nature, with the beautiful people who are there, you know, all that warm culture, uh, that, that community spirit. But, you know, it's, it's just, unfortunately, it hasn't been shining through with all the, you know, the war we have been through and all the religion religion divide. I mean, it's not, it's it's all political. It's not about religion, you know. I mean, it's, uh, and this is why, you know, we get, we you know, as, as um, growing up in this country, you couldn't really adopt a cause and feel passionate about it because it was all over the place. Uh, you know, everyone was fighting everyone. Yes. So you couldn't say like, oh, you know, you're going to get, you know, this line and this is going to get us to a safe place. And then things tips over, you know. In, in It's very confusing for Lebanese people to actually have a sense of patriotism uh, when um, we don't have leaders who have mm-hmm. got that. Um, and unfortunately, you know, these leaders have been there for such a long time. Um, and it runs in families. Um, so, yeah, uh, all I can say that we were lucky that we left, but we have gone there nearly every year when things were okay, mm-hmm. um, because 
you know, again, you can't really, um, these are our roots and, and what made us who we were, where we are now. Um, and we help whatever we can, but um, there is no light at the end of the tunnel still, unfortunately. And that makes me very, very sad. Yeah, yeah, me too. Is there anything we can learn about death and dying from Lebanese culture, from Arabic culture, that, that we can bring here to, to Australia? Well, that's it, you know. That they are compassionate communities. So that's that's how things are were, you know, in, in those uh, in those cultures. And there are cultures not just, you know, from my culture who do it well, like the Irish do it well, the Aboriginal people do it well, the Maoris, you know. So so I guess um, it, it's quite interesting how only when it's become an academic field <laughs> uh, that sort of we're raising the, the light yes. on it, you know. I mean, uh, to, to actually tell somebody who's from these cultures, uh, you know, about compassion communities is like, you know, as you say, any suck eggs, you know, like, it's yes. just like, <laughs> <laughs> like what you need to teach this stuff to Australians. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, uh, so like, but, but in the Western culture, we've lost it, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, of course, not all places and, and, and areas, but in general, because of this individualistic, you know, mm -hmm. way of living, um, you know, I mean, the, again, there's no community or, you know, extended family living together anymore. It's just the way we live, you know. Yeah. Uh, and the more we are um, socially connected internationally, the more we are locally disconnected, which is unfortunate. I mean, with mm -hmm. all the uh, social media and everything, yes. you'd think that people, you know, are so well connected. But then it, it, it didn't stop the increase in depression, anxiety, no. suicide rates, all that stuff. Uh, so which means we need to see each other. We need to talk to each other because, again, you know, science showed that there is a certain uh, biological, uh, and I'm not in this field, but this is what I hear from my colleagues, there's certain biological reactions that happen physically in your body when you connect with people and talk mm -hmm. to them, um, you know, and hug them uh, and just share some love and laughter, you know, and friendship. And uh, that's not going to be beaten by anything anything in terms of it you know or in or artificial intelligence and all that stuff so back to the essential back to nature people you know just be there for each other learn how to support people again back to my experience with grief and my colleagues um and that's one thing that we are hoping to achieve with the compassion communities is what to say and not to say because this is all what people want to know you know I don't want to be saying the wrong things to to create more damage. So if people know exactly, you know, one, two, three, four, these are the things, try not to say that, and everything else will fall in place. It's simple, but people don't know it. And I didn't know it. I'm not saying I came from, this is why I was attracted. I said, we could do it better than this. Um, and I certainly started by teaching myself and learning, and then, you know, hopefully everyone else can. The other thing, Ian, when you told me, how do people start compassionate communities? The other important uh, project that we're doing with the local government, Bambri City Council, is uh, to get a compassionate charter because it's going to basically glue the whole community together into focusing on being compassionate, whether workplaces, whether schools, whether faith organizations, whether you know the aged care sector, sporting organization, art galleries. Um, so in a way, it brings the conversation at a higher level, mm -hmm. uh, not just, you know, at the level that we've got it now, if you have a terminal illness, 
which is very important. And uh, with the preliminary work that we started doing with the community consultations and forums that we are doing in the city of Bunbury, um, people want to have something tangible. Okay, tell us how we can help. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the things that they really understood is the connector program. Yes, we can be volunteers. We can do this thing if we are shown how to do it. So that's wonderful. If we can increase the number of people who... Um, you know, are interested to uh, adopt that kind of volunteering model because, again, it's different to um, a hospice model or the traditional hospice model, especially in a, when we are now in an era where um, all, uh, you know, research is showing that volunteers' rates are dropping. People are not really, and COVID-19 didn't help in this either. Um, so to get people to know that the way they're going to volunteer, it's about spreading more compassion uh, that is really something that the community is is happy about. And there are a lot of compassionate communities. Ottawa is a compassionate city, Bern, Köln, and few of the U.S., you know. So, again, uh, that's something that we need to work on in every, you know, place in Australia. And Samar, just, just finally, talking about compassionate communities and, and hearing the impact they have at that local level, what would your pitch be to to government, I guess to state government and, and federal government that, that fund our health system. I imagine a, a compassionate community saves the health system money because of the benefits that you've pointed to. How can state government, how can federal government support a compassionate community? Is it investing more in palliative care services or is there, what, what, can, what can those higher levels of government do? That is my next topic of thinking about this, how we go forward from here, because with the way we've done it, uh, it's very volunteers, you know, but, you know, people need help even when they are volunteers. Um, people need to be to be trained. That's the other thing, you know, all that death literacy, grief literacy, you need to get more specialists to help the community with this. So this is at the moment where um, funding is needed in, in getting more of these specialist people to help the community, uh, to build the capacity of the community. And of course, they need to be paid. Uh, palliative care services definitely need to be more supported to actually deliver the whole holistic aspects of care, mm -hmm. not just uh, clinical care, symptom management, which I said again, they're brilliantly, they're doing this very well. And the latest review of palliative care services we did in Western Australia from a consumer perspective and people who have used palliative care services gave their feedback as well as those who didn't and invariably those who had palliative care rated all the services at much better quality mm -hmm. than the ones who received non-palliative care services to help them. Uh, so it's a wonderful field but we need to be able to um, broaden the scope of palliative care services to be able to be more involved in family care support, in bereavement support, in the spiritual existential support, in the psychosocial support. And, and this is where the community then will understand better what palliative care is about. It's not just an extension of oncology, you know, to, uh, to some of them think, or it's not really, <laughs> it doesn't belong, you know, with, um, you know, only the death part, you know. Yeah. So, uh, that, yeah, there is a lot of community awareness. And again, this is where funding needs to be um, spent. So, Mark Really appreciate your time and your wisdom today and how exciting for our sector, the palliative care sector, the health sector, that 
this Australia Day Award has come along and you now have this platform to, to bang this drum on, on our behalf, on the community's behalf, and try and drive the change, drive the improvement that we all hope for. We'll all be cheering for you come Australia Day. Good luck. We'll all be cheering you you on and wishing you well. And we should also mention that another champion of the sector has also been recognised as part of the Australia Day Awards. Theresa Plain from New South Wales has been announced as the New South Wales Senior of the Year and is in line to be the Australian Senior of the Year, recognising her decades of service as a palliative care nurse, advocate and volunteer. And we wish Theresa really well as well. Thanks so much for your time today, Samara. To have palliative care in the spotlight. Isn't um, it? Wonderful. Yeah. And thank Happy you. Day, I will feel all the warmth and love on the day as well from, from all the palliative care community. Thank you.